Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 104. I said on Monday's podcast that when we clicked record on Friday's podcast, we'd already know the result of the Brewer Wild Card Series, the Diamondbacks. And sadly, we are doing a post-mortem Brewer season podcast. I am dead inside. Maybe that's a bit dramatic. I am dead inside. But I kind of felt that way on Thursday. Just a rough two-game stretch for the crew. Couldn't get the clutch hits, didn't get the elite pitching that their team is built on, and it ends up being a two-game sweep at the hands of Arizona. And now an offseason with about 100 different question marks, the first of which will revolve around Craig Council and will he be back, won't he be back, do you want him back or do you not want him back? The organization feels like it's at a bit of a crossroads now. We're going to break all that down. We'll talk about what happened in the series and then what we see going forward now for the Brewers as they hit the offseason earlier than we thought. We'll talk more about the Packers on Monday's podcast because Monday Night Football, good news injury-wise, though, especially on the offensive line heading into that matchup against Vegas. Badges back on the field after a bye week. They've got Rutgers at Camp Randall on Saturday. They are two touchdown favorites. I don't know. And we will make our picks against the spread after a bloodbath. Last week, we are now a game under 500. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run! Morgan a smash up the middle, face hit the center! Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, backed away, it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, baseball season, when it ends, I blogged about this on Thursday. Of all of the major sports, of baseball, football, college football, college basketball, NBA basketball, whenever it is, whatever day it is that your team is done, the Brewers, the Bucks, the Packers, the Badgers, whatever, Marquette, whatever your team is that you really love, Whenever that day comes that the season ends, and especially if it ends in the playoffs or in a tournament, that day's tough. I believe baseball is the cruelest of all of the sports. Don't get me wrong. I am gutted when the Packers lose in the playoffs, especially at the end of the Rodgers era where they were losing in the NFC Championship game a step short of the Super Bowl every year. Those are gutting losses. The Bucks in the playoffs getting upset by an eight seed or go back a few years losing in the Eastern Conference Finals. Those are gutting Baseball is more punishing to me, though, because of the amount of time, the sweat equity, literally the sweat equity, which is sad because I'm sitting watching the game. (laughs) That's pretty sad, but it is sweat equity. The amount of time you invest in a baseball team, if you're a diehard, if you're a casual fan and you're in and out and you're not watching every game, maybe it's a little bit easier to move on. When you're a diehard and you're watching every game, 162 games in the course of a regular season, you're talking about just about every night, We are talking about, well, I was going to say three hours. Now in the pitch clock era, two and a half, two and a half to three hours. Not a whole lot of three and a half hour or four hour games, thank God. Then you're investing even more time. 
Over the course of six months, though, every day, almost three hours a day, and your team gets to the playoffs, they win 92 games, they win the division, and in a best of three, they lose the first two games, and it's over. Just like that in 27 hours. You've watched them every day for six months, and it's over in 27 hours. I had a buddy of mine, Nick, who he was texting the group text, and he's a Cubs fan, not even a Brewer fan, but he knows what heartbreak is about. Nobody has been molded more by heartbreak than him. As the game came to an end on Wednesday, he texted the group, the rest of the group, all Brewers fans. He said, and I thought this was, this brought a tear to my eye. This was poetry. He said, baseball is usually cruel and occasionally wonderful. And if that isn't the best synopsis of baseball as a sport, I don't know what is. He maybe stole that from somebody. I may have to type that into Google and see if that's a Nick original or he found that from some other book somewhere. Is that a Ken Burns quote? Baseball is usually cruel and occasionally wonderful. Absolutely true. And as I said in the blog on Thursday, the recap blog of the series, and we'll talk more about this at the end of the discussion of what actually happened in the two games. Not that we need to dive too deep into it. I think now for the Brewers, their whole mantra heading into the playoffs was built for October. That was the whole philosophy. That was their tagline heading into this year's playoff run. Built for October. And what we have learned now this year, and I guess what we probably should have learned in 2021 and 2020 and I guess 2019 to an extent, is that this team, this franchise, is built to make October. They're not necessarily built for October, to win in October. They're built to get there with a focus on pitching and defense and not a ton of offense. They are built to get there. They're built to win 85 to 90, 91, 92 games. Once they get there, though, with the way that they have molded their team, it is difficult once you're playing very good teams or good teams, and every team in the playoff, for the most part, is a good team. And we saw that play out on Tuesday and Wednesday. The Diamondbacks, despite backsliding down to that sixth spot and going 84 and 78, you can go back and listen to any of the podcasts that we had leading into the playoffs. This was the team I was most fearful of. They have good young hitting. Corbin Carroll is one of the best young players in baseball just in general. They've got a mix of young and veteran players who have been on the playoff stage before. They've got the two aces at the top. We didn't even see Merrill Kelly. We saw Zach Gallen. Then we saw the rookie Fox on Tuesday. Then you saw Gallen on Wednesday. We didn't even get to Merrill Kelly. They had a lot of talent. They had given the Brewers fits this year. Those series were early in the year as we broke down on Monday's podcast. How much you can glean from that when we're talking about a series in April and a series in June, I don't know. But apparently you could take a little bit from it because this two-game stretch went about the same way that those two series did where the Diamondbacks took four out of six from Milwaukee during the course of the regular season. This was always the worst matchup, and it played out just like that. And it started on Tuesday. I said this in the blog. Corbin Burns on the hill. You get a 3-0 lead, first two innings. The vibes were so good. Corbin was rolling through those first two innings, striking out guys left and right. You got the tone setter in the first inning where you got a hit with the runner in scoring position. And at that point, you hope that would just relax them for the series. That's a difficult situation for the Brewers all year, getting a hit with a runner in scoring position. When they got one in the first inning on Tuesday, you think, okay, good. Now the pressure won't be on. This will release the pressure valve, and everybody in that dugout can say, all right, we got one with a runner in scoring position. Now we can settle in. Now that's not going to haunt us for the next 48 hours. It ultimately did. That did not work like the pressure release that I thought it would. The Carlos Santana RBI single in the first inning on Tuesday. And then in the second inning, Tyrone Taylor, who ended the year on such a surge and was very good in both of these games, 
hits a two-run bomb. You're up 3 nothing. You've got Corbin on the hill. No way they lose that game. And then Corbin just lost it. He's had games like that this year, more so than the past couple of years. Not where he's given up three home runs. He has given up home runs more, though. Not to the level of 2019 when they sent him down to AAA because he was giving up home runs left and right. He looked like he was pitching BP for the home run derby in 2019. He got that corrected by moving to the cut fastball in 2020. Cy Young in 2021. Top 10 Cy Young last year. This year, a bit more uneven. And he just gave it up. He gave up back-to-back home runs on back-to-back pitches, a two-run shot and a solo shot, gave up another home run the next inning. You got down 4-3, to and even though you're only down a run, the offense playing the way it has most of the year, you start to think, oh, gosh, it's already the fifth inning or the sixth inning, and now we're down a run. you got to find a way to dig yourself out. They had their chances in game one. The biggest was the fifth inning. You had bases juiced and nobody out, and you couldn't get a run. I mean, guys, put one in the air. And it looked like Bryce Terang was hit by a pitch. That would have tied the game. Bryce Terang is a side note. My man, you have got to sell a hit by pitch. There has got to be somebody in that dugout after that play that's going to go to him in the offseason and teach him how to sell a hit by pitch. This is how delusional my brain is. This is how many worms are in my brain. I've, I truly believe if he would have sold that he got hit by that pitch, even though he didn't, and the correct call was made, it missed his toe by a centimeter. The correct call was made, unfortunately. And the Brewers ended up on the brunt end of a lot of that, the two-game series. The Diamondbacks deserved to win. They beat them in both games. They took advantage of their opportunities. They hit the ball authority. They pitched well. They deserved to win. They were the better team. If you watch those two games all the way through, though, little things like that, the baseball luck component of winning in the playoffs, all of that basically went the Diamondbacks' way. They got all of the ricochets. They got all of the random plays. That went their way. That's a part of it, though. That's a part of winning in October. That was a part of it for the Brewers in 2018 when they made their run to within a game of the World Series. I really believe, though, when Bryce Terang just stood in the box and waited for the umpire to make a call, if you are close to getting hit by a pitch in a playoff game where the run would score would tie the game, just go to first. Just go. Sell it. Act like you got hit by that pitch and sell it. For some reason, my brain believes if he would have sold that, even though the visual evidence... (laughs) would have proven that that was not what happened. I believe if he sells that, somehow they go to replay and the Brewers still end up getting that run that they'll say, oh, yeah, maybe grazed his toe. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell with the angle. Just sell it. He then, of course, strikes out, and you could feel the doom in the air after that when he struck out. Then they had that rocket off the bat of Taylor, off of his bat, When they went to the back angle behind home plate, I was convinced we were going with a bases-clearing double down the line. This was going to be a two-run Brewer lead. And Evan Longoria, who I didn't even know was still in Major League Baseball before Tuesday. I guess I didn't do my scouting on the Diamondbacks. I don't even remember him playing in those early season series against the Brewers. Was he hurt? Longoria, for so many years, was very productive in the Rays organization, all-star level, MVP level for a couple of years there. Then he went to San Francisco for a while, I think, and has parted around for a couple of other teams. I had no clue he was still in Major League Baseball and making plays like that like it was 2008 when he was a gold glove third baseman. He leaps in the air, snow cones it. People got mad at Willie for being too far off the bag at second. I don't know. I mean, yeah, in theory, in that spot with one out, you should really wait until the ball touches grass in the outfield to make a move. He thought the same thing we all thought, though. Off the bat, the sound of it, the direction it was headed, he thought this was going to be a situation where he had the go-ahead run at second base and he wanted to get a move. I'm not going to cast any aspersions his way for making that play or trying to make that read. He ends up getting doubled off, and that really set the tone for the rest of the series, honestly. You had Yelly over on the bag at second the next inning when they could have had runners on first and second and nobody out, not that they would have scored there. 
That ends up with a loss. Devin came in only down a run in the ninth inning. He was bad. 30-plus pitches, gave up a couple of runs, that ringing double. You get down 6-3 and lose game one. Every run given up, by the way, for the Brewers in game one was from an all-star pitcher. Williams and Burns, all those runs given up. Then you come back on Wednesday, and Freddie was good. It was almost the same script. It lasted a little bit longer. The hope lasted just a little bit longer on Wednesday. The hope went away in the third inning after a good start on Tuesday. On Wednesday, again, they score early. Zach Gallen, the Diamondbacks' ace on the mound, they get to him for two runs. He throws over 30 pitches. You've got that pitch count running up there. Maybe he's only going to last three or four or five innings. Good vibes all the way around. Good news all the way around. You got the lead, and you're pressing their ace into a high pitch count in the first inning. Then Freddie dealing. Freddie had a no-hitter through four and two-thirds and still had that 2 nothing lead. And then we got the Jurassic Park water tremble with the home run from the eight-hole hitter with two outs in the fifth inning. That was the first hit he had given up, but he ends that inning, and the Brewers still have a 2-1 to lead, and he's gone five innings of one-run ball. Brewers can't do anything in their half of the fifth. Coming out in the sixth, it was 9-1-2 on the way for Arizona. More ominousness, <laughs> ominousity in the air when you walk the nine-hole hitter. And he had him in an 0-2 count. You could tell that the velocity was down a little bit. The location wasn't as good in the sixth inning. He was ahead 0-2 on the nine-hole hitter, then four straight well out of the zone, walks the nine-hole hitter. And then you've got the Diamondbacks' best hitter, Corbin Carroll, their leadoff hitter, up with a runner on and nobody out. Dun, dun, dun. And then Carroll, who is good and gets a little bit more of that baseball luck. This was another one of those baseball luck things that just went the Diamondbacks' way. He shatters his bat. Which, if you're a pitcher and you saw off somebody's bat like that, that's an out nine times out of ten. That shows you that you got it right basically where you wanted it to be when you saw a bat in half like that. It ends up being a ground ball to Carlos Santana. Carlos Santana, a play he makes 99.9% of the time, but did not make in that instance because the shard of that bat was headed in his direction. It didn't end up being all that close to him, but visually, on a bang-bang play you see yourself getting impaled, you're probably not going to make the play that you're expecting to make. It was another piece of baseball luck. Diamondbacks get runners on second and third, nobody out. Freddie gives up another run. Abner Uribe comes in. Wild Pitch gives up a run. Texas Leaguer gives up a run. Another little baseball thing there. Before you know it, you're down 5-2, to two and you were up 2-0 20 minutes before. Another little baseball luck thing, too. I think it was the third inning. Brewers had two on with one down, and that was the Sal Freilich rocket up the middle, 103 miles per hour off of his bat, ticketed for center field, would have scored at least one run, and Zach Gallen literally, it hits the tip of his mitt and knocks the mitt off of his hand. That's how fast it was going, but his mitt falls right in front of him. He picks it up and starts an inning-ending double play. Little things like that just did not go the Brewers' way. Again, Diamondbacks played better. They deserve to win. Little stuff, though, just little paper cuts in addition to what else was happening throughout the game. They couldn't get those little things to go their way. The Brewers get the bases loaded in the eighth inning with one out. Could not capitalize there. A lot of debate among the fan base as the Diamondbacks brought a lefty in. Sal Freilich was hitting with the bases loaded one out. He has not been great against lefties this year. He's a rookie. Do you pinch hit somebody there? The number one person I heard people wanting to pinch hit was Joey Weimer. Joey Weimer, guys, was like Jesse Winkler. He hasn't had an at-bat at the major league level since August. Weimer or Winkler had, Winkler hadn't since July. It had been a long time, though, and the reason Joey Weimer got sent down was because he couldn't make contact anymore. Weimer splits 
do trend much better against lefties. In fact, if this is the way that he goes the rest of his career, he'll likely be a platoon player that's going to play against lefties and not play against righties. His contact rate against righties before he got sent down was abysmal. He was okay against lefties. That lends credence to that argument of, well, maybe let him hit there. But the guy's hitting 209. We're not talking about a guy. We're not. He's a rookie hitting 209. We're not talking about a veteran right-handed bat that's hitting 270 against lefties that has played in the playoffs before. That's the only other option was Joey Weimer. I don't know. I, I think you roll the dice there with South Freilich. Freilich gives you a better at-bat most of the time over Joey Weimer. Freilich, though, just gets a little piece of one, an infield grounder, and then Adamas hit a rocket, but they had him positioned perfect on defense, and it goes right to the second baseman behind the bag, and that ends the inning. They got two on with two outs in the ninth inning. Yelly had a double. Yelly had a good series, four hits in eight plate appearances, took a couple of walks too. But Wilson, or William Contreras, not Wilson Contreras, my God. William Contreras strikes out to end the game, and the season comes to an end. When you look at this series in totality, and it's only two games, the problem is, what's is that a Dire Straits song? Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. It's the same as it ever was. It's the offense when it comes to this time of year. It's the offense most of the time anyway, but especially this time of year. The offense just could not come up with a clutch hit. I wrote in the blog on Thursday, when you look up and down this roster, and the offense got better when they got Santana, when they got Canna, some veteran bats to put in the lineup. You saw the offense improve. There was not a whole lot of room but up to go for the offense. They did get better, and they had some hot stretches during the course of the year. Every team does. The Royals had hot stretches. The A's had hot stretches. They did have that hot stretch at the end of August, I think it was, into early September where they won eight or nine games in a row, and the offense was scoring five or six runs. You did see improvements after the deadline with Canna and Santana in that lineup, but even with those guys, the offense was still below average. The offense still didn't hit for a ton of power. And the offense is not particularly good at small ball. That's what I wrote in the blog. This team is not a slugging team. And you saw why you need that. This whole series, these two games, show you exactly why you need a team that can slug doubles and home runs. I'm pretty sure every run the Diamondbacks scored was on either a double or a home run. I have to go back and look at it. Brewers only had one home run the entire series and maybe a handful of doubles. Just look at the stats, though, for the regular season. Nobody on this team hit 30 home runs. In 2023, in a, in now, a, what, a four- or five-year stretch where it's home runs or strikeouts for a lot of the power hitters in baseball, and those are valuable commodities, you didn't have a guy that hit 30 home runs, not one. Willie hit 26, was it? And that was the high on the team. Then Yelly had 19. They did not hit for power, really, this year at all. And on top of that, they're not very good at small ball. You've got to be good at one or the other. This team did not hit for power, and they were not good enough to come up with the three or four hits it's going to take in an inning to score a run. If you're playing small ball and you're moving runners around, you have to get three hits in an inning to score a run. That's a lot of work. This team didn't have that either. Not good with power and not really good at small ball either. That's a bad combination. In a perfect world, you want to be good-looking and smart. (laughs) This offense was neither. This offense really was neither. Despite even having a few hot stretches during the course of the year, they just could not be consistent with the bats or hit for power consistently, even with Canna and Santana in the lineup. The question then becomes... How do you fix this going forward with the offense? This has been a problem now. It was a problem this year. It was a problem against the Braves in 2021 when they couldn't score a run. It was a problem in 2020 when they couldn't score a run against the Dodgers in the playoffs for all year long. Really, the last lineup they had that you had confidence in would go back to 2019. And even though they lost in the wild card round that year, and that that time it was just a one game. It was a one-off against the Nationals. That lineup in 2019 
had Yelly, MVP Yelly, where he had 44 home runs that year. It had Moustakas having an excellent year. It had Yasmani Grandal at the tail end of his prime where he hit 25-plus home runs. That was the last lineup where you looked at a top-to-bottom and you saw threats top-to-bottom. Since then, the offense has been the number one issue plaguing this team. They've got a gigantic hole at first base still. They still haven't filled that since Prince Fielder. They've got a gigantic hole at third base. You're not getting power from either of those. And those are the spots, third and first base in baseball traditionally, not even just in the new era. We're talking about over 100 years. Those are the spots where you want guys that are going to hit you 25, 30, 35 home runs and hit 240 or 250 or 260. Those are the power spots. They have been searching for consistency at third and first base for a long, long time. And they just haven't generated a lot of power outside of that. Now, how do you fix that in the offseason or in the years to come? I don't know. The number one answer to me, there's a couple of ways they can go about this. If they are committed to improving the offense and making a title run, they can spend money. That would be the first most logical answer. You maybe have to go out and spend some money. And I'm talking about real money. I am not talking about going and getting guys like Brian Anderson. I am so goddamn sick of the last two or three years the Brewers going and getting utility guys or journeymen or guys on the back end of their career looking for one last contract and they're giving them these one or two year deals and trying to squeeze the life out of that player and get one more year of productivity out of them. That's not going to cut it anymore. We've been trying this now for three or four years. The Brian Andersons, the Rowdy Telezes, unfortunately, and maybe he sees some resurrection. I have no idea. Dismal year for him. Guys like that. Guys like Andrew McCutcheon. Go back to 2022. I loved seeing Andrew McCutcheon in a Brewer jersey. I thought that was very cool. He was well-liked in the locker room. He had an okay year. He had an okay year in Pittsburgh this year. Andrew McCutcheon is on the back end of his prime. And the thing that annoyed me most about that in 2022 as the season was falling apart, Mark Atanasio did some interview talking about the payroll and how much money they're investing in the team because questions were being asked that in 2022 of how much money are we investing in this team? How committed are you to putting... Not a, just a playoff team, but a title team on the field. And he talked about the one-year, $8.5 million deal they gave Andrew McCutcheon, the ghost of Andrew McCutcheon, like he had signed Andrew McCutcheon from 2014. I don't know if Atanasio just doesn't know how to address those questions or he thinks the fan base is not sharp and they're going to think that we're getting 2014 Andrew McCutcheon. Everybody knew what Andrew McCutcheon was when he came to Milwaukee. And he acted like a one-year, $8.5 million deal was expanding the budget. Oh, we really blew the budget up, but it's Andrew McCutcheon. I think that was his quote. Yeah, we, we went out and spent some extra money this offseason, but yeah, when you get when you have a chance to sign Andrew McCutcheon, you got to do it. Well, let me tell you something, Mark. Everybody could have signed Andrew McCutcheon in 2022. Not a knock against him. Anybody could have given him that eight and a half, nine or ten million dollar deal. Bringing in Andrew McCutcheon four years after his prime and MVP years are ended is not going to fix an offense that has been stuck in mud for at that point three years in a row. We've got to be done with that. We have to be done with those guys. You've got to go out and you've got to get a guy like a Pete Alonso or I don't know who's going to be a free agent. Matt Chapman, third baseman in Toronto. I think he's going to be a free agent this year. You're never going to get the Shohei Otanis, the Juan Sotos in free agency. I understand that. But there are guys that are not 37 years old and on the back half of their career trying to get one more deal. There are guys you can get that have some upside that may be in the back end of the prime of their career where they're 30 years old and not 36 years old. There are players you can go and get, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you $18 million a year or $20 million a year. 
That's the easiest solution is to go out and spend some money. I don't know what the Atanasio situation is financially. Nobody does. The payroll has been stagnant now for three or four years. We know he's investing money in the soccer clubs in England. Is that distracting him? Is the stadium deal and the lease distracting him? I do not know. I don't know if that's even a feasible idea that you go out and you sign a big-name first baseman or a big-name third baseman or both. You really need both. This team really needs a couple of legitimate middle-of-the-order bats. They need a Braun Fielder from 2009-2010. They have neither right now. I don't mind Yelly as a leadoff guy. I, I don't know what they do with Adamas. I don't mind Adamas in the two-hole. That 3-4-5, they've been trying to force an assortment of players in there that have no business being there. You know what will be an interesting litmus test? This Mark Canna option. Maybe that will tell us, maybe that will read a little tea leave into what the Atanasios and what Mark and Matt Arnold are thinking that they can do in the offseason. Mark Canna, when he came over from the Mets, was very good. 285, I think, or 287 batting average. OPS was close to 800. He hit for some power. He had a few doubles. He hit that big grand slam against Washington toward the end of the year. By all accounts, a productive player. And his option is for $10 million. And I think they should pick it up. They should. He's, he's going to be a guy that's going to give you solid at-bats pretty much the entirety of the year. Injuries have never been a problem for him. You'd love to have that guy in the lineup. If the Brewers are going to keep doing business the way they have in 2020 and 21 and 22 and 23, they'll pick up that Canna option and then they'll act like they signed a big free agent. Oh, we spent $10 million. We picked up the option and then they'll force Mark Canna into the three, four, or five hole in that lineup. That's not where Mark Canna belongs. Mark Canna is the perfect two hole hitter or the perfect six hole hitter. But the way that Atanasio has been doing business, he's signing these guys or picking up options and then he thinks that's a lot of money, which in current baseball economics, it's not. And then he acts like that's going to be the middle-of-the-order hitter. I love the idea of picking up Mark Canna's $10 million option and him being the six-hole hitter coming up next year. But then you've got to go out and somehow acquire or sign legitimate middle-of-the-order three, four guys that are going to hit you 30 home runs and slug over 800 and knock in runs. That's not Mark Canna. But it'll be intriguing to see what they do if they pick up that option and then do nothing else. I guarantee you Mark Hanna is going to be 3, 4, or 5 on the opening day lineup in 2024. And that's just not the solution you're looking for. So that's one direction they could go. They could spend some money. Another direction they could go is trade. We don't know what the plan is right now with Corbin, Woody, and Adamas. We've talked about it all year. Those guys are entering the final year of their team control next year. You're not going to re-sign any of them. You're definitely not re-signing Burns. Not with the little bit of animosity now between him and the organization. And definitely not with who the heck is his agent. Everybody hates him. (laughs) He's the guy, though. Everybody hates him except for the players that he has because he always gets them the best or highest amount of money. Scott Boris. No chance Burns is back. Now, you could do with Burns what you did with Prince in 2011, who was also a Boris guy, wasn't he? You could... Go out and sign two legitimate bats, and you could enter 2024 the way you entered 2011 and say, we're going for it this year. We know we're going to lose Prince. We know we're going to lose Corbin. We know we're going to lose Adamas. We're probably going to lose Woody, but we're going for it for this one year, and future be damned. They could do that. The likelihood to me is Burns is traded. I feel almost 100% that Burns is gone, that we saw Corbin Burns' last game in a Brewer jersey on Tuesday. Woody's injury complicates things. I don't want to say the injury might be a good thing for us as a fan base, but I kind of feel like if he can get back to being healthy and pitching well, the injury might put him in a spot where you could get him on a two-year deal or a three-year deal for less money than you'd have to. Again, not rooting for anybody's injuries, but that may put you in a position where you could bring Woody back. Adamas is an ultimate wild card. I have no idea what to expect with him heading into next year. 
if they're going to keep him, if they're going to trade him, what his trade value would be. His batting average has dipped all of the last three years. His OPS has dipped. His power's pretty good, not as good as last year. And we've just seen that the bat fall off every three years, all, all three years in Milwaukee from where he was in 2021 to 2022 to 2023. It's dipped every year. He gives you very good defense at shortstop, no doubt about that. That is very consistent and a big element of his game as well. I don't know what they do with Willie. Again, if they get, if they sign Willie to a big deal and you're giving him 100 plus million, that's another guy that doesn't belong in the middle of the order like Canna, but you're probably going to have to if you're paying him a ton of money. I don't know what they do with him. Could you flip Corbin Burns for a Pete Alonso or a player like that? Does that make you appreciably better? You know what I mean? There's going to be a loss then in the starting rotation. Can you replace that more easily than you can find another bat? I don't know. But trade would be an option and you would think at least 3 Big-name players for us, Adamus, Woody, and Burns, are going to be the topic of conversation when we get to the winter meetings. The other option is internal. I get it. It's a small market team. The economics work against you. I would love for them to spend more money like we just said. I also understand the reality of baseball and the TV money and the radio money and all that kind of stuff working against them. And because of that, the Brewers are always going to be 50 to 60% homegrown. They have to be. Can you supplement the fringes? like they've tried to do with some of the names we just talked about, or could you make one big splash and that puts you over the top? They're going to have to be mostly homegrown, though. What the options would be there at first base or third base, I don't know. People want to see Tyler Black. He was at AAA to end the year. He doesn't profile as a guy that's going to play defense well at the major league level at third base. You could maybe find a way to put him at first base. His power does trend towards 30-plus home runs at the major league level. He could be a guy if he has good a good run in winter ball and he looks good in spring training and you're comfortable with that on opening day next year. He could be a guy. Beyond that, not a lot in terms of infield that you could promote. We know they have a million outfielders, and we hope they all get better with more seasoning. Freelich and Weimer and Garrett Mitchell. We've seen a very limited sample size of Garrett Mitchell, but nothing not to like about Garrett Mitchell. Why he wasn't on the postseason roster and Jesse Winker was is a mystery that will probably never be unraveled. You like what you're seeing from a lot of those guys, and you hope they get better the more at-bats they get and the more experience they get. And then you do have Jackson Churio. By most measures, the number two or number three prospect in baseball, he was very productive in AA. That continued in AAA. He is likely, in my mind, to begin in AAA next year. And at some point, he probably could be at the major league level. If he starts in Nashville next year and he's tearing the cover off the ball like he has at every level – it feels almost impossible that you'll be able to keep him down all the way through next year. And why would you want to anyway? I would imagine at some point in the middle of the year you'll see that. But that's all outfield. That is all outfield. Could you move Yelly to first base? I've seen some debate about that. I don't know if that's possible. He's got the height. Has he ever played first base? I don't know what the options would be internally outside of Tyler Black coming up and occupying one of those corner infield spots. Well, they've got a lot of decisions to make. It just the whole team and Craig Council too. That'll be the first domino that fall that falls. There are a lot of fans right now that want Council gone because they're 1-9 in their last 10 playoff games and they're scoring 1.8 runs per game. Understandable. And there are a lot of fans that want to see him back because this, even with the playoff failure, is still the most successful era of Brewer baseball ever. I still feel like I'm on that side of it. Although, with another playoff flop and now being 1-9 in their last 10 playoff games since the 2018 run, I'm beginning to understand more the anti-council side. I still think he's the best option for the Brewers. I don't see him managing anywhere else. 
my belief is that he's either going to retire and watch his kids play ball and ride off into the sunset, or he's going to come back on an extension. You are seeing that debate. That'll be the biggest chip to fall. That will be the first chip to fall. I just don't see another manager getting 92 wins out of this team. I understand the argument that the playoffs haven't gone well. This roster is not loaded with talent. They've got good pitching. They've got good bullpen pitching. They don't have a ton of anything on offense. To squeeze 92 wins out of that toothpaste tube, I don't know if there's a manager out there that's going to be able to get that. I understand we have to be better as a team in the playoffs. I just I don't know who else gets that win total out of the talent on this team. That's why I would be afraid to see him go. But council, the organization, the fan base, it feels like we're at a crossroads right now where you're kind of stuck, where you're in the playoffs and you're winning. You know what this is like? This is like, let me get my Catholic school upbringing here. This is like purgatory. For many, many years and decades, this team was in hell. We were in hell. We were losing 95, 100 games a year. We were watching Ruben Cavedo and Glendon Rush make 30 starts a year. It looked awful. It was dismal. The seasons were over before they started. We were in hell. Then, in 2008, they make the big splash with CeCe. They've got talent. That whole crop of young kids with Braun and Fielder and Hart and JJ all came up, and most of them all hit, and you were getting production from almost every one of them. You break the playoff drought. 2011, you go and get Grinky. You're in the NLCS. There was a gap there, but then especially 2018, 2019, 2020, they got out of hell. They are winning 85-plus games a year right now. They are in the playoffs with the expanded field. It feels like they're in the playoffs every year. But now it's been five, six, seven years of that, and you're stuck in this middle ground. And while we appreciate not being in hell, we appreciate being in purgatory. We remember it wasn't that long ago. We remember what it was like to have our feet to the fire. We like to stay here, but you want to go to heaven. You want to take that next step. You don't want to be winning 87 games every year and being out in the first round forever. You want to see them graduate to that next step. How do we get to that next step? That's the question. You've got a fan base right now that recognizes how far the franchise and culture have come, but now we've been there for a while, and you want to take the next step. And the next step is figuring out how to fix the offense. You've got a team built on pitching and defense. As long as the pitching and defense are as good as they were this year and in 2022 and 2021 and 2020, in the new era of the playoff format, as long as you have excellent pitching and good defense, which the Brewers do have, you're probably going to win 85 games or 90 games and get a playoff spot and get a wild card spot or win a division like they did this year. Until they find a way to fix that offense, though, it's hard to envision them getting past the NLDS or getting past a wild card round or making the World Series and winning a title. That's what they have to focus on. Got to fix the offense. That gets us to heaven. We're stuck in the middle right now. Disappointing end to what was a fun regular season. And like we saw at the top, baseball, babe, just that quickly, it all comes to an end. We'll see what Council does. That'll be the, the first thing we watch for. I don't know how long he's going to take. I know in the postgame he said it wasn't the time to discuss that. You knew reporters were going to ask him about that. He brushed it off and said, now's not the time. Thanksgiving, will we know by Thanksgiving? Will we know in the next week or two? I feel like they've got to know soon because if he's not back, you have to start exploring options immediately. Maybe in the next week or so, we'll have a better picture of what Council's going to do. Is he going to go to New York with David Stearns? I don't think so. Is he coming back? Is he retiring? Could he retire and come back in two or three years and watch his kids play ball in college and then come back? Could Pat Murphy hold down the throne for a while and then Council comes back? I don't think that's that far-fetched. We'll see what he ends up doing. They want him back. Now he has to make the choice. All right, let's talk about the Badgers real quick. We have football back on Saturday after a bye week. No Ches Malusi. We lost him that last game out. We know he's not going to be in the backfield on Saturday. 
I don't know if there's a whole lot to say about this game. Rutgers is not bad. They are 4-1. and one. The only loss is to Michigan. The box score of that game indicates that they got their doors blown off, 38-7 to seven or 31-7. to seven. That was a close game for the entire first half and part of the third quarter before Michigan got separation. I don't know about this 14-point spread, guys. I don't think I'm touching this. I don't think I'm getting close to this with a fire poker. A lot of fire on the podcast today. Got fire on the brain. All right. 14's a lot. And with what we've seen from the Badgers so far, what did we say before the last week they played? Until proven otherwise, we can't trust him with a spread like that. I still feel that way. And Greg Schiano back at Rutgers, it seems like he's got that team trending back in the right direction. Remember, he was there in the early 2000s when that whole program was a mess. And he got them back to relevance. He got them to a BCS game, didn't he? Not a title game, but one of the – remember when there was the four games, then there was the BCS championship game? There was a year in there where I'm pretty sure Rutgers only had one or two losses. And he got them pretty consistently winning eight to ten games per year. Then in 2012 or 2013, he made that leap to the NFL to Tampa Bay, like it is with a lot of college coaches that thrive on that college atmosphere and the rah-rah stuff and the big locker room speeches. That doesn't go over well with guys that are making $10 million a year. They aren't motivated like that. That did not work out. He kind of kicked around for a while and ended up back at Rutgers in 2020 in the pandemic year couple of lean years there, but now he's got him 4-1. and one. He's got talent coming back in. It looks like he's doing what he did in the early 2000s. I don't know. I'd be a little on guard about this game if I were a Badger fan. I don't know. I would love for them to go out and win by 21 points or 28 points and be fresh off of a bye and look more like the team that we were expecting them to look like at the beginning of the year. I would not touch the 14 points on Saturday. Hopefully you get a win. Hopefully it's a convincing win. And then you'd be sitting at 4-1 and and 2-0 and in the Big Ten, feeling some momentum before you have a showdown with Iowa next Saturday. That game is on the way. What time are we talking about on Saturday? I've been so locked into being bummed out about <laughs> being upset about the end of the Brewer season that I didn't even really check the time for the Badger game. Rutgers is at Camp Randall at 11 a.m. Oh, this is on Peacock. Do you have to have the Peacock app? Do you have to pay for the Peacock app to watch this game? We pay for so many apps, man. (laughs) They really got us. We all thought we were so smart when we cut the cord, and now we're all paying $10 a month for a million different apps, and you're paying for the internet on top of that. Hopefully you can just watch that by downloading the Peacock app. I know the Peacock app has some free content on there or commercial content that you can just watch. They have that $5 a month subscription. I hope we don't have to do that. 11 a.m. on Peacock, Rutgers at Wisconsin at Camp Randall this Saturday. And then we'll just close quickly on the Packers. There's not a whole lot going on heading into Monday. We'll talk more about that on Monday's podcast. You do feel good about some guys coming back from injury. It sounds like Jair is going to be back in the secondary to take on Devontae. They've been chirping each other all week. That should be a fun matchup to watch, the Devontae-Jair one-on-one. Elton Jenkins back at practice. We thought he'd be out a lot longer. Sprained MCL, sometimes that means two weeks, sometimes that means four weeks, sometimes that means eight weeks, and sometimes you end up with a guy on the IR. We went over after the Detroit debacle, losing that game you lost in the trenches on both sides. You couldn't stop the run on defense, and you couldn't block for anything. Almost said something else. You couldn't block for anything, and you couldn't protect Jordan Love, and you couldn't get the running game going. The Lions' front seven dominated the offensive line for the Packers. They were in Jordan Love's house all night long. Royce Newman was blocking ghosts. You had... 
who's filling in? Rasheed Walker filling in for Bakhtiari. He had his worst game. Hopefully he'll tighten things up. If you can get Elton Jenkins, though, back on the left side of that line at guard, that stabilizes a lot. And it looks like he's trending towards playing on Monday. Looks like Jair could play on Monday. Feeling good about Jones and Watson now. This team is getting close to back to as close to 100% health as we have seen in a long time. They are one-point underdogs against the Raiders. Remember in the preseason podcast when I was going over some of the futures that we have, I had the Raiders under their 6.5 or 7.5 season win total bet. I think it was 6.5. And And I said at the time I was going under on that. My thought was the Raiders might be the worst team in football. I think that they could end up being a three-win team or a four-win team. They are 1-3 going into Monday. There's just so much... From a Vegas perspective that's unknown about the Packers, I would think it's hard for them to make Green Bay a three- or a four-point favorite. That's where I feel they should be. I was kind of surprised this opened as a Vegas spread with the, in their favor, even though they're the home team. I think the Packers are going to win this game. I think the Packers are going to win. If you made the spread, if I were to guess before I looked at it, I would have said Green Bay by two and a half, Green Bay by three. It's Vegas by one right now. 7-15 kickoff on Monday. Like I said, we'll go over a lot more of the Packers stuff on Monday, on the Monday podcast. Only Monday night game of the year, thank God, for the Packers coming up just a few days away. But encouraging news all the way around in terms of injuries and guys coming back. All right, let's make some picks. Well, last week was not great. Not great, Bob. One and four. We talked about that, I think, on Monday. We split the college games and then went over on the NFL games. Just couldn't get one right. And we weren't the only ones. Any gambling podcast I listened to had a rough week last weekend, with the, especially with the NFL games. I've got four college and three NFL, and I may add one more. We're going to add, I think, a bet on the Packers right now. Maybe we'll wait till Monday. Sometimes you wait till Monday. Monday Night Football in the gambling community, if you are not somebody that gambles on games, Monday's a big one. You don't love adding Monday or betting on a Monday game before you know the results of Sunday or adding them into a parlay or a teaser or something like that. You want to see how the weekend plays out. And then on Monday, you have a decision to make. Monday, if you're down or had a bad weekend, can you make it all back with one bet on Monday Night Football? Or did you have a good weekend and no reason to spoil it by betting on Monday Night Football? (laughs) That's why that Monday Night game is always a tipping point. Four college games, I am all over the over on total points in the Red River shootout. Oklahoma and Texas, it feels like every year that game is just points, points, points. Over under is 60 and a half. So we need kind of a 31-30 final would cash that ticket. We're on the over. I bet the over on the Red River game every single year. It doesn't hit every year. I feel like it hits more often than not. We are over on the 60 and a half. I'm taking my brother-in-law's alma mater, Alabama, minus one at Texas A&M. Bama comes in one loss. A&M comes in one loss. A&M was in the top 25. They just got bounced out. Alabama's back to top 10. People have been writing the obit for Alabama and the Nick Saban era for, it feels like, a couple of years now. And I just, I don't think it's over. I don't know that they're going to be, well, they could make the college football playoff. They're not one of the favorites right now. Clearly, Georgia has passed them in the SEC power rankings. I just feel like people are sleeping on Alabama for as good as they are and as talented as they've been over the course of, what, 15-plus years of Saban being there? I don't know. I I just feel like they're going to be there at the end of the year. They are minus one. They just have to win. You're in a tough environment at A&M. I realize that. I'm taking Alabama minus one at Texas A&M. I am going to take Iowa minus two and a half at home against Purdue. Purdue showed me nothing against Wisconsin. Wisconsin won that in a layup by, what, 21 points at Purdue. And I feel like the Badgers in Iowa – are pretty evenly matched, and that Iowa defense is outstanding. I'll take them to win by three at home. They're at they're in Iowa City at home against Purdue, and I'm going to be back on the Dion train. I faded Dion the last two weeks. 
We were on Dion the first three weeks and cashed all of those tickets. Then we faded them against Oregon. We cashed that ticket. I faded them against USC. Should have cashed that ticket. USC was up 38-7 to in that game, and they were 20-point favorites. And somehow that became a one-touchdown game. USC won 48-41. Uh, Buffalo's rallied, though. They are minus four at Arizona State. Arizona State is not a good program. I will take Colorado minus four at ASU. And then in the NFL, I did put a tickler this week on the Texans to win the AFC South. D'Amico Ryans, first-year head coach, coming over from San Francisco. He was the D coordinator at San Francisco, and that was always a top-five defense. He's in Houston now year one. C.J. Stroud looks like the real deal. He looks comfortable in an NFL setting, and he would be the odds-on favorite right now to win Rookie of the Year. Ryans has implemented that Niner defense in Houston. He doesn't have the talent, obviously, that he did in San Francisco. They're playing, though, with their seats on fire for D'Amico Ryans. And you've got young offensive weapons like Nico Collins. They've got some guys. They're 2-2. Two and two. Every team in that division is 2-2. Two and two. And they have a road win against Jacksonville. Jacksonville was the odds-on favorite to win that con- or that division. And the Texans already beat them, and that game was in Jacksonville. The Texans have won their last two weeks convincingly against Jacksonville and Pittsburgh. They won that game 30-6. to After losing their first two games, they dominate their second two games. It just feels like a young team with a good young head coach and a productive rookie quarterback in a bad division. I took the Texans plus 480 this week to win the AFC South, and I'm going to take them in Atlanta. This doesn't speak well to the Packers. The Falcons, to me, are frauds. And if they're going to stick with Desmond Ritter, they're going to be a sinking ship. I will take the Texans plus one and a half at Atlanta. New England could not have looked worse against Dallas. My expectation is they're going to bounce back at home against the Saints. Not good news for my AFC South Saints bet. They haven't showed me a lot this year. I thought with the veterans on that team and in a bad NFC South division, they could win nine or ten games. Derek Carr, we went over that in the preseason podcast, all the success he's had indoors, and he's playing 12 of his 17 games indoors. They haven't really shown much, have they, at 2-2. Two and two. If New England wins this game, it will hurt my Saints future bet, but I will take the instant gratification if they can win on Sunday. And they're at home. New England at home in a bounce back minus one against the Saints. And I'm taking the Bengals. Arizona has been frisky. Everybody thought Arizona was going to win two games and have the number one overall pick and move on from Kyler Murray. Their coach has had some weird videos before the year where it looks like he's a robot trying to be a human being. What is his name? Jonathan Gannon? Maybe it's a Jonathan thing. It just inspired no confidence, and it looked like it was a season they were going to mail in. Well, the Cardinals are what? Overall, they are 1-3. and three. Are they 4-0 and oh against the spread? They may be. Let me click on the – where is my Cardinal game? Where is Bengals Cardinals on it? Here we go. They're 1-3. and three. They played everything close – they're 3-1 and one against the spread. They have been a more competitive team than I think anyone thought they would be. The Bengals were a team expected to make a Super Bowl run. Burrow hurt himself in the preseason. He has not looked like himself. They're 1-3. and three. I'm just betting on the team that was the favorite with their backs against the wall in desperate need of a win. Minus 3. Bengals minus 3 on the road at Arizona. If the Bengals lose this game, it's over. Their season is done. And you almost wonder how much you want to put an injured Joe Burrow on the field, your franchise, your young franchise quarterback. If you lose this game, I'm sure he'll be out there. But you do start to question, if you're a Bengals fan, do we really need him in harm's way where he could suffer catastrophic injury that has a ripple effect beyond this year? 
This is Cincy's last stand. If they cannot get a win in Arizona, their season's a wrap. That's why I'm going to take them minus three on the road in Arizona. New England minus one at home against the Saints. Texans plus one and a half in Atlanta on the road. And then the over on the Red River rivalry, Oklahoma-Texas over 60 and a half. Alabama minus one at A&M. Iowa minus two and a half at home against Purdue. And Colorado minus four on the road at Arizona State. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you Monday. 